You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come Myth Behave with us? Hello, and welcome to Myth Behaving. This is episode number 36, and we're recording on September 28th, 2014. I'm one of your hosts, Mara Wilson, and as some of you may know from episode number 35, my usual co-host, Carla Clifton, is on hiatus. So I am joined by my two new co-hosts, Paul Ellis and Katie Brisky. Hello, Paul. How are you today? I'm actually doing pretty good, Mayor. Uh, yesterday, it was great fun at the Ellis household. We went and replaced brakes on my wife's car, brakes and rotors. And my middle child, who is my girly girl, has been watching Gas Monkey Garage a lot. So she went and she actually replaced one of the brakes and rotors on the car. So we got a gearhead in the family. We're really excited about that, to tell you the truth. Um, but, but it did t- kind of take away from my being able to do a lot of reading. Um, as you know, uh, each episode of Myth Behaving features a special guest from the literary world. Could be a writer, a publisher, agent, editor, or anyone else connected with the world of publishing. And it is fun. And Katie, what have you been up to lately? Um, I have been slinging beer at my day job. Uh, so I work at the Living History Museum. We have a brewery. So I was uh, in costume selling that beer. But when I was not doing that, I actually had a project come out this week myself. Um, I did an RPG with a company called Choice of Games. So it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book, um, except instead of flipping to a page, you press the button to shoot the monster. And as the one who wrote it, I suggest you always shoot the monster. <laughs> so that came out and it's um, on the iTunes store for Android and iOS, so that was pretty fun. Um, and luckily, going to my day job and waiting for this game to come out, I did get time to read. Um, and also prepare, because as you all know, we also have several special segments related to reading and writing. And speaking of writing, I did get my first book out in my series this week. So Ooh. Modern Magics is now live. Relics is out there. The novelettes are out there. And it's been it's been a real a real fun and very different ride re-releasing the second edi- or releasing the second edition. So redoing everything has been quite exciting. Be very quiet when hunting books in the library of a myth behavior. Okay, that means that it's time for something from the Library of the Myth Behavior. And today we are going to be discussing A Fallen Hero Rises by M. Joseph Murray. This is a, a starts out as a very classic type of fish out of water. It uh, rapidly morphs into somewhat of an epic fantasy. There's a great deal of interesting world building that goes on and some serious character development that you don't normally see in the fantasy genre. I highly recommend if you haven't had the opportunity to do this, you go and pick up a copy of this book. Uh, Joseph is not just an author, though, multi-talented as a lot of creative people are. He also is a cover artist, and I believe he did some covers from you, didn't he, Mayor? He did. He did um, six covers for me. In fact, uh, we're still working on the sixth one. But five covers that are out there already, the, the reveals have been done. So we're very, very happy to introduce M. Joseph Murphy as our very special guest today. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting that he did covers because I found in the book, like, it was so visual. Like, he did such a good job with description and setting and Paul, as you said, world building. And I found it was really cool that there were both science fiction and fantasy elements. Because um, when I started reading it, it did seem very epic fantasy. But there are other little hints thrown in. And I was like, whoa, I, I haven't seen this done before. This is cool. 
So we're very happy today to welcome M. Joseph Murphy. So welcome to the show, Joseph, and thanks for joining us today. Well, I'm very happy to be here. I'm uh, very excited to be here today. Thank you. Well, I, I have had such a blast working with Joe on my covers, but let's first chat about your writing. Joseph, how did you get into writing? How did you become an author? Uh, well, I, I've kind of written since I was a, a small kid, but I remember very specifically in grade 10, I was given an assignment in English class where every day I had to sit down and write one page in a journal. And what most of the people in the class did, because it was high school, is every day they sat down and wrote just whatever came to their mind, and every day was a different story. But for me, the first thing I did was I sat down and I said, I'm going to tell a novel. And I just wrote, every day I wrote one page, and by the end of, this, of the year I had my first novel. It was completely unpublishable, and when I look at it now, it's a little embarrassing, but it taught me at a very early age that all I have to do is work a little bit every day, and before you know it, there's your novel. Uh, that takes a whole lot of dedication to, to be able to do that. That's something that I struggle with today. Is that something you continue to struggle with? Not at all. Nope. I'll tell you why. The, as soon as I stopped waiting for inspiration, as soon as I said, this is it's a job, you know, if, if you only showed up your, at your job every three or four days, your boss is going to be a little unhappy. So... For me, I just look at it as I'm going to sit down every day and write whatever I whatever write, and sometimes that means that you end up with a lot of garbage, but that's what editing is for. That's right. You can't edit what you don't have. No. Uh, so now that you've been doing it for a while, do you find it's, that self-discipline comes more easily than maybe when you were in grade 10? <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot more, a lot easier now. Basically, uh, what I try to do is uh, I'm lucky enough to have a day job where I can I don't have to work uh, tons of hours, so usually every day around the same time, I sit and write for two to three hours a day. Uh, that's not um, sometimes that two to three hours is spent uh, doing editing or revising, but I do at least two hours of work on my writing every day. That's fabulous. Uh, one of the things I really love about your novel, and, and Katie mentioned this, and that's the fact that it's really genre bending. You've got that fantasy and sci-fi flair, and as you know, my own books are fantasy sci-fi uh, genre blends along with paranormal mystery. So I, I really enjoy that. But but what made you want to? Um, combine those two unique elements in the way you, that you did because yours is almost sci-fi epic fantasy whereas mine's contemporary fantasy sci-fi so it's it's very different it's a very different blend what what inspired you to go that direction with this story well uh, earlier drafts of the novel uh, I went with a very traditional fantasy world so I had elves and dwarves and ogres and at one point I just realized that uh, from my perspective, I was just being lazy. Now, I know that not I've, obviously many people that write with uh, elves and dwarves are very creative, but I realized I was using it as a crutch. I didn't have to worry about any world building or their history because everybody knows about elves. So instead, I decided to create a new race. And as soon as you start creating new races, then suddenly it's not the magic system has to change, and I didn't want to just, you know, sometimes uh, if you talk to high, uh, like the science fiction fanatics, they'll tell you the main difference between fantasy and science fiction is that in fantasy, you don't have to explain things, and I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that you need to be able to explain your system, whatever your system is, 
Uh, there is a mysterious race of beings that you is mentioned in the in the first book called the Nizarians, and you get to see a little bit more of them in the in the sequel that will be coming out soon. But their presence on the planet adds a bit more of a science fiction element to the entire uh, entire work. Well, you're absolutely right about the story being uh, having to have an internal consistency to it. Whenever you're doing anything like that, like you like you mentioned, a magic system, you can't just have a wizard walking by all the time and saving everyone. It, it's got to be able to hold together on its own, and that, that is quite a challenge. Mm-hmm. You can make up your own rules, but you have to follow your own rules. Exactly. So what I did is, because I'm, I have slight to moderate OCD, I don't usually do things in, in halves. So I put together a, an almanac of the world, basically describing the entire magic system. It ended up being about a 700-page document, uh, again, most of that will never see print anywhere, but at least I know it. So I don't have to think as I'm writing anymore. All the systems are there. I have, you know, I, I went a little crazy and developed an entire fauna and flora species. So I, if you ask me about any plant on the system on the planet, I can think of them all, and you know, which was a lot of work at the time, but. Now I get to be a little bit lazier because I can just refer to the almanac. That's fabulous. It's a fellow uh, world Bible builder. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I do that as well. I, and you're right. Most of that stuff will never see print, but it adds a depth and a richness and a flavor to the backstory, the unspoken backstory that helps carry the, the main plot along very nicely, I have found. Oh, I agree. It's because... I think what some what I I've done quite a bit of beta reading, especially over the last two years, and I think what many first time authors tend to do is throw in too much world building, and it's like an inf- what we call an info dump. Uh, I'm going to pick on George R. R. Martin for a second. Uh, I know that many people love him. I am fascinated by the work he's done. He's done some incredible things. However, if you're reading his book, he will tell you about the. Geneal- genealogy of the serving, uh, the serving girl and what her parents used to do and where they are from and what their family used to do. And I don't really care. <laughs> don't really care. <laughs> and so see, I, would- I love that. Oh. I love all that detail. I guess it depends both on what you're trying to express as a writer and also what your tastes are as a reader. Um, but it is a skill to select what you need to communicate. And actually, that was something I found a lot in your novel, Joseph was that I knew exactly what I needed to. And I had enough that I felt like there was a whole world beyond the page, but I wasn't getting bogged down. So how do you select it? Is it like a conscious choice or is it something you've more developed an instinct for? Um, well, it's the, it's, that's what happens when you work with decent editors and decent beta readers. You know, you have, if you work with someone and they say, this part here took me out of the story, then over time you realize, oh, that's the part I probably need to take out. Uh, I, I was very lucky to work with uh, a fellow author named uh, Travis Lutke, and he actually beta read my first book uh, twice, and he cut it down. I think he took out about 100 pages. Of uh, It wasn't A Fallen Hero Rise. It was another book I did called Council of Peacocks. And he, working with him helped me see the parts that were, you know, what part do the reader does the reader need to see to actually get the idea of what's happening? And What part is mostly me saying, look at the cool stuff I know how to do? Of Truth and Mythery. Of Truth and Mythery is a segment where we take a commonly held publishing or writing belief and examine whether it's true or just another myth. 
Joseph, please feel free to answer this. It's one of the ones that I love especially. All authors must suffer for their art. True or mythery? Um, I'm going to say... I'm a Libra, so I, my, my gut is to say both. <laughs> I think you, if you don't suffer to some degree, then you have nothing really to write. I think that. But I also think there are many writers out there or people that claim that they're writers that spend lots of time just talking about how hard their lives are. Uh, maybe that's just uh, the people I, I saw when I was at university, but whenever I'd go to poetry readings, there were a group of artists with a capital A that would sit and talk about how much they were suffering as if it was an art form themselves. Um, so I think you, you have to suffer to a degree just so that you've got something interesting to write about, but there also comes a point you have to say enough suffering and get to work. I'm a, I'm a fairly happy guy, or happy-go-lucky type guy. I don't tend to take anything with a great deal of seriousness, which may or may not be a good thing depending on your particular point of view. But what I've found uh, in my writing when I suffer is when I'm doing the hard work of, like you said before, cutting 100 pages. Uh, that That's when I that's when I start to suffer. Um, Katie actually edited one of my, my short stories that I did for uh, Tales from the Archives, and there were there were points in there that that got cut out. Uh, a lot of it got cut out wholesale. One of one of the scenes was this very emotional scene between a protagonist that became a secondary character in the final edit. And I really loved that scene, and I wanted to keep that scene. But the problem was that once it's gone, the story moved along just fine without it. So that's when I say that an author suffers. Mm-hmm. It's that I'm in love with my own words. But I can get rid of them. <laughs> that, yeah. That's the type of pain that, that I think of when I think of an author suffering. I'd say I'm sorry for your pain, but <laughs> your story is so much more awesome now. It was awesome before, <laughs> but now it's like so good. So I'm not sorry at all that you suffered. <laughs> I sympathize, but I'm not sorry. And I appreciate it. Even though it was painful at the time, it did make for a better story in the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting looking at this concept of suffering for one's art. Um, because I know some authors who are like, I'm totally going to be the next Hemingway. Give me the bottle of whiskey. Um, I need to suffer. Um, I think as human beings, just going about our lives, I think we suffer in various ways, large and small. I missed the bus this morning. I suffered inside. Um, I had a friend pass away um, about six weeks ago. I suffered slightly more. Um, I think the trick as it relates to writing, is that no one is going to suffer in the exact same way as you, right? When you have um, suffering-causing situations, no one else is going to have those feelings that you are having right then. And if you can take those feelings, that is what is going to make your work not like anyone else's. And that works for happy things, too. That happens for moments of joy. It's finding those things that you're experiencing and those things that are happening inside of you that are so different um, and making those part of your work. Um, which happened actually when my friend passed away, my mentor at Stone Coast said, yes, it's very hard, but right now you can use this because um, no one else is feeling this way right now. So that's what I tend to think of when I think of suffering for one's art. I prefer not to suffer. I'm with Paul on this. If I can avoid suffering, it's a good thing. But, you know, life happens. It happens to all of us. And I think being able to take those moments and, and use them later is a good thing. So yeah, I we all suffer with, in various ways. So I'm I'm also with Joseph on the it's a little of both. So good answer, Joseph. I don't mind suffering so much for my art 
I don't want the readers to suffer from my art. <laughs> yeah, true that. Uh, so, Joseph, I'm really intrigued that you're not only an author, but you've also added covers to your list of accomplishments. Um, so we talked about how you became a writer. How did you get into doing cover art? Uh, well, I've always kind of been artistic. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a child, my, my dream goal in life was to become an artist and work at Marvel Comics. So I wanted to draw comics for a living. Uh, then I realized that uh, I actually started looking into it, and the artists that work uh, for the big comic book companies, they end up drawing for something like 18 to 20 hours a day. And I decided I did not want to be an artist anymore. So I, didn't, I actually gave up artists, art of most types until about, two, a year, about a little over a year ago. And I realized that uh, trying to self-publish can be very expensive because you have to do all the hiring yourself. And I was looking to see if there was some way that I could streamline the process and make it a little cheaper for me. I knew it was impossible to be your own editor because that's... Uh, there are some things you can do yourself. You cannot be your own editor. That's not possible. Oh, I agree with that. So I said mm-hmm. the one thing I one thing I could do is I could start doing my own cover art. I had a less than stellar experience with a cover artist on my first book. Uh, I sent him a very rough mock-up saying this is what I was thinking. He sent back something that I didn't like, but everyone else said they did. I realized later that everyone was just being very, very nice because the, the cover was not very professional looking. So when it came time to release my second book, I decided that I needed to learn how to use Photoshop. So I spent, um, got the program and spent probably, I want to say four months of working with it daily just to get a decent skill up and then put out my, uh, my next cover. One of the things that is fun working with Joseph as a cover artist, and this is the author speaking, well, the author and the publisher speaking, um, I sent him the concepts and he sent back like, oh gosh, I want to say five, six, seven cover ideas and all, all different. And I felt like I was a kid in a candy store because I want, okay, I want this font and I want this background and I want this figure here. And I don't like people on my covers, but he gave me um, one of the books had the girl on the cover with pulling the curtain back. And I was so intrigued by that concept. And then, of course, the, the picture of the galaxy was not the one that was on that particular cover. So I, I literally was able to choose the different elements. And so working with him as a cover artist was a very unique experience. I've worked with other cover artists before, and this was a very, very unique experience of being able to pick and choose the different elements that I liked. And once we settle on the font, of course, the font carries through the whole series. But he, he did some really clever things that were unique and then we also what was really cool was we also got on what do we get on google hangouts yes yeah i think that was probably one of the smartest things we could do because you know when you're just emailing back and forth it's very easy to um, kind of misunderstand everyone and that's what happened you sent me a message saying just tweak this little thing here and i misinterpreted it thinking i have to change the entire cover so I spent, I don't know, another 10 hours re- completely redoing the cover only to learn that I didn't have to do that at all. Uh, Google Hangouts was really great because they have a, a, a screen share thing, which I believe Skype does as well. 
So I was able to just hop on and say, here's Photoshop. What would you like me to do with the picture? And then uh, Mayor was able to just say, move it over here, do this, try this. Uh, what could have taken weeks uh, over email took something like 20 minutes over the internet. So uh, that's something that I intend to do with every client from now on. So you don't do just the, the cover. You will actually do the branding and uh, the cover art, but you will do the branding for the the title page as well. Oh, yeah, I do the layout because I, I think it's if you're Not just – the title page. Just the cover. Right, right. Just so the you're cover. doing right. the, the layout of the, of the title of the, the cover, which I think some people forget, but the font choice is as if not more important than the image itself. And what I've actually started to do is I start with the, the fonts first. So I just start with the blank cover, make sure that the, the fonts look decent, and then put an image in behind it. Uh, now, that's at least a good place for me to start. What I've seen often, uh, one of my favorite websites is a, is called LousyBookCovers.com. It's one of my favorites, Yeah, too. I've been yeah. on there a little bit, looking at and, it. <laughs> you know, that's when I first went on there, I was like, well, people actually are doing these as real covers. Well, if they can put out a cover, I know I can. And I, that was part of the inspiration to do my own cover as well. But uh, usually the two biggest errors people make on their covers... <laughs> is they do a lot of photo bombing, which is they just take a picture and lay it on top of another picture. Um, and then it looks like a collage more than um, an actual one piece of artwork. But the other major problem is they just use really, really bad and unreadable fonts. So I, nowadays I usually start with a font and uh, put everything else in around that. Makes sense. I mean, the, it's really the font that you're going to see if you're browsing whether in a brick-and-mortar bookstore or online. Like even I think before you really see the title, you see the shape and the color of the font. Your brain goes, oh, right, that. I know that series. I fell in love with the font that we have on, on my series because he did something very clever. He took the font and then he just played with it and gave it different sizes so that the, the cover, the, the title just jumps off the page at you. To me, when I look at my cover, the first thing I see is that title is, is relics and it just jumps off the page. And because it's, I've never, I've never seen it done quite like that before. So I, I, and it's probably been done like that with other people, but I haven't seen a title like that that has those different sizes of, of um, the letters. And it was it was kind of fun because I think it brings in a little bit of the humor that exists in the book because there are some some funny scenes in the book. But uh, at the same time, we've got the mystery with the girl pulling the curtain back. We've got the galaxy that brings the sci fi element in. So we've got all these different elements and he managed to capture them all, which was to me incredible, especially after trying to explain to people, okay, this is what I want. And not getting what I not getting what I want. So, building a little bit off that, Joseph, um, how do you determine exactly what elements go in without reading the entire book first? Have you got uh, a formula that you follow, or is it just like you said, uh, Google Hangout that you that you run through? Uh, how do you get to that first, the initial? Here's what I have. What do you like or don't like about it? Uh, in many ways, I think reading the whole book would have been worse because I think one of the problems people have when they're, they're working on a cover is they're trying to pick a scene from the book and show it on, on the cover. And if you look at books that you'll see in, in, a, 
walk into a bookstore. That is not what you see on the covers of books. You never, ever see a scene from the movie or a scene from the book on the, on the front cover. What you have to do in the cover is uh, give a snapshot of what the book feels like. So it's like basically, here's the feel of the book. What I do with the first initial uh, run-through is I come up with a, a cr kind of a few different ideas. Often with, with writers, they, if you're not a visual person, you might not really know what you want on the cover. So you, you'll say, here's what I think I want on the cover, but um, what, I, what I did with Mayor's case is I said, you want, this is what you're saying you want on your cover, so here's what you're telling me you want, but here's what I think you should do, and that way you've got it to, for comparison. Uh, one of the things that many I, many authors try to do is they say, I want this image on my cover, I want this scene on my cover. It's not usually the best thing to do. One of the best examples, I think my favorite cover artist is a guy named Christian McGrath. He actually does the covers for the, um, the Dresden Falk series. He works with uh, Jim Butcher's books. And on the cover, uh, Harry Dresden, the main character, is always shown wearing a fedora. And in the series, he never once wears a fedora. The reason why they do that is it creates an air of mystery, and it says, here is a mystery set in a fantasy world. You have the flavor of the series. But they never try to say, here's a specific scene from the book and put that on the cover. You know, I have got every single one of those books. I have seen that fedora on every cover, and I never put it together until right now. Well, I think that's what he did with my curtain, my girl with my curtain on the cover of Relics. And I think that's exactly what we did because that's, you know, uh, people, the, the one comment I'm getting over and over of, on that cover is how they love how, you know, you see part of the girl and pulling back the curtain and that it, it gives that air of mystery. Yeah, it sounds like you're really trying to distill the spirit of the story in a way and portray that visually. And then you've got the rest of it in, inside the book. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. The the kind of the the sad irony here is, I think the part of the probably the worst part for me, the most difficult part for me, is doing a blurb for my own books. You know, trying to distill what is here's what my book is about in five or six sentences is extremely difficult for me. But showing that in a picture is very simple because, you know, the old saying, a picture's worth a million words or a thousand words. With one image, you can say, here is what my book is about. Uh, it doesn't hurt that I spent most of my life looking at comic book covers. And that is what a comic book cover is supposed to do, is say, here's what the comic feels like. Here's what it's about. Even though most comic book covers don't have a scene from the book, uh, it's all about the flavor. It's time for Mythprint, tips and tricks of the industry. It's time for another one of our special segments. Mythprint includes a basic tip concerning writing, marketing, or anything else to do with the industry. Joe, what would you consider the most important tip you can offer someone who wants to do cover art? Uh, the first thing is to make sure you actually have artistic talent. <laughs> That's one tip. Step one. <laughs> I like it. Because, not like me who can't draw stick people, right? <laughs> you know, it's just some people think they're artists and you're not. However, even if you don't have artistic talent, you can learn, but you have to be willing to put the time in. If you're not willing to put the time in to learn how to use programs like Photoshop or uh, I use another program called iCandy, which is amazing, works with Photoshop and helps me do some very cool things. But if you're not 
willing to spend the time on it, then you should probably outsource. You mentioned those two programs. Have you uh, run across one called DAZ? And well, if you have, what, what's your feeling about that? I actually, I did look into Daz um, because I went through this moment saying I'm, I was looking for very specific cover art, like a stock image for a cover art, and I couldn't find it. So I said, I will start using Daz, and it was too much of a learning curve for me, so I stopped. I decided that if I wanted stock, uh, a stock image that I couldn't find, I would get off my lazy butt, get a camera, and take my own pictures. <laughs> sure enough, have you had to do that before? Uh, yes, I did actually. The, for a cover I was working on recently, I could not find the, the image was very, very specific. Uh, it was uh, a, sh a man with a five o'clock shadow wearing a hat and holding a tarot card in his hand. So you are not going to find that stock image anywhere. Nope. So, <laughs> no. So I said, I have a camera. I have a, a tarot deck. I can find a man with a, has a sh uh, five o'clock shadow. I will take my own picture. You've got two very distinct and diverse uh, areas of, of your artistic and creative experience here with writing and cover art. I'm going to ask the question that I love to get asked so much about that. Uh, which part do you love the most about what you do, or can you actually separate them? Well, the one thing that I really like about cover art is it takes a heck of a lot less time than writing a book. You know, I, uh, I can do, uh, when I was working with Mayer, I think I put together maybe seven or eight covers in three or four days which is not possible to do if you're working on a book. Um, what I like about writing is the very first time someone came up to me that I did not know, so a complete um, stranger con contacted me and said, your book really uh, was fascinating and I enjoyed it and thank you very much. And Just that, that idea that I was able to help someone else live through the world that I had created is... I don't think I've got the words for how that feels, just to know that you're able to take somebody on a fantasy ride. Uh, so a short answer would be the part that I like most about writing is having people I don't know read the work and have them admire it. If that sounds, when I say it that way, it sounds kind of egotistical, but. No, it sounds really <laughs> touching. It's, it's, it's making a connection with someone else. Okay. It doesn't sound egotistical at all. I can totally understand why that would be a favorite part. Okay, so what you just said sounds much more cohesive than what I said. So <laughs> the connection with my readers would be the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like your answer better. We'll go with that. Okay. Um, well, I got to hear you say your answer, and I just, you know, you did all the work. Um, I'm also going to be kind of go the opposite way now. So is there anything about the writing process or designing covers that you don't like? Uh, part that Again, I... shattering dreams. All oh, that's fun sunshine. Now talk about the hard <laughs> stuff. The hard part, you know, uh, the formatting part is uh, is a big pain in the butt. Revising, 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 revising is, uh, it feels a little bit too much like work sometimes. You know, I think some people have this idea, especially people that aren't writers, have this idea that writers just sit down and make stuff up and then walk away. And that's, you know, that's the first draft. And then there's five or six drafts of painstaking going over uh, tiny, tiny details that people probably won't notice. I just went through uh, went through my entire the book I'm working on right now. I had to go through and check every instance of the word was to make sure I wasn't overusing the word was. So that's not my favorite part of writing. As for the worst part of cover uh, working on cover art, um, it's the client, isn't it? It's the client. <laughs> Those clients, man. Well, here's here's one thing I'll say about clients that can be tricky, is if a 
if someone that is not a graphic artist or isn't a very visual person, uh, and I'm not talking about Mayor because she was very clear on what she wanted. Uh, I've worked with one person in the past that uh, they really wanted a cover that was really, really horrible. And I didn't really want to put my name on it. They, they came up with this idea of like, this is what I want on the cover. You have to do it because I've hired you to do it. So just do it for me. And, you know, let's, I, I think sometimes your ego can get in the way and say, that's what happened in that case was my ego got in the ego got in the way and I didn't like the cover that she liked. What I had to remind myself is that she is the client and whatever she wants is what I have to do for her. So if that, if there's any part that I don't like about working with cover arts, it's, it's that part. Yeah, but we're going to have fun with book six because you've, or, or, book three because you've you've got a brilliant concept i can't wait to get that cover out there yes i'm looking forward to that too uh the cover that i was talking about that uh i I won't mention names but it was a cover that i felt was the font was wrong the covers the colors were wrong the image was a low quality but again the, the the writer had a very specific idea of this is what i want on my cover i just don't have photoshop so i want you to use your skills for me and again, as a cover artist, I have to do whatever the client wants, even if I disagree with it. Well, yeah, but in that case, it sounds like you were being less of an artist and more of a technician and just carrying out somebody else's. No, and that's part of the job. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you're working, uh, part of what I imagine working and what I've heard working for a big publishing house is like is a big publishing house can do the same thing. They can tell you, here's what we want you to do, and you have to do it. And that's one of the benefits of being independently published is I don't have to do that. Well, you know, Joe, authors work in so many different ways. And you mentioned already that you have the 700-page almanac that describes all the flora and fauna and everything. But do you actually outline the story at that point in time or was that just creating the world? Do you, So are you a planner? Do you outline everything in the story or are you a pantser when it comes to the story itself? And letting the book go where it will. I have ridiculous outlines. And what I've discovered is that the outline is really good until the characters take over. There is a, there's a, in my last. (laughs) Oh, no, I I share your pain. I share your pain. (laughs) You know, the booking I'm working on right now, which I will not spoil, but there's, there was one character that was uh, supposed to die. And I realized I didn't want this character to die just yet. I wanted them to stay because they were very interesting, and I was going to have them work for. I wanted them to stay for another couple books, so I rewrote it and I changed the scene in which this person died, and then at a certain point they died again. And I just and, and I just remember the writing the scene is like everything is wonderful, and then she died. And I'm like crap, it works, and it's this character dies in a way that is absolutely meaningful for the story, and it works very well. I had not planned that at all, but that's what happened. Well, that's the beautiful thing about outlines is that they're great until they meet the characters, and then things go sideways. As they should, to be quite honest, I think. And I'm with Katie on that one, as they should. (laughs) Now, you you mentioned that briefly about a project that you've got coming up. Can you, without, you know, revealing anything in too much detail, share us a little bit, share a little bit with us about that next project? Oh, easily. The uh, the next, the book I'm working on now, it's actually just off for the second to last round of edits. Well, it's the last round of edits before it goes off to the proofreader. It's the sequel to A Fallen Hero Rises. 
and the main character ends up in a complete full-on zombie invasion, which is, you know, it's again, that's something that I haven't seen in a fantasy novel. Uh, you know, I know zombies are really hot right now, but uh, this is an idea that I've actually had uh, for a very long time. Uh, to be very honest, this is, I mentioned the story that I started working on in, um, in grade 10. And it would, the story I worked on in grade 10 was actually called The Demons of Dundagore. And that's actually the name of the book that I'm working on right now. So I, I went back old school for this one. Oh, excellent. So it's a full circle yeah, thing. Yeah, And I, I actually, I, I had worked previously with an editor that I have a very good relationship with who usually writes in the, uh, she writes and works in and edits, uh, usually romantic comedy. So it's completely different than anything that I work in. But in some ways, I like that because she was able to point out the parts that uh, you know, fans of the genre wouldn't normally get. You know, fans of the genre can be very forgiving. Uh, but for this one, I wanted to get someone that knew the genre, that was uh, more of a fantasy sci-fi person. And I uh, ended up working with a woman uh, named I think it's Jen Ryan, and she is an excellent editor. She's, uh, I cannot recommend her enough. Uh, not as tough as I was expecting, uh, not to mention any names, but somebody told me that she was uh, a real stickler for certain things. And Maybe she's she actually... just... <laughs> <Could be. laughs> Maybe you but just she's... didn't do those things that she's a stickler for. She could be, yes. You know, there's, there was one part in the book where I said, uh, I know you're telling me to do this, but I don't want to do it. You know, I think the answer should be this. And she said, you can do what you want. You're the writer, but you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like Jen. So it's a zombie invasion in a fantasy world, uh, and we get to see the main character of a fallen hero rises. Uh, he returns, and all the um, all the characters from the first book show up again. So it's uh, I'm looking forward to people reading it. Awesome. Um, so we've seen a lot of changes in the publishing industry, like just even in the last couple of years, um, a lot more independence, um, especially amongst, uh, you know, emerging authors. Uh, do you feel that the changes have impacted your work? Um, and if so, how, and how do you feel about those changes? Uh, I think there has never before been a better time to be a writer. This is the, uh, the best time in probably civilization's history to be a writer. There is, uh, it, there are so many ways to get content out there, and if you're willing to do the work nowadays, you don't have to go through. Uh, from what my understanding was before, publishing used to be very much a who-you-know sort of world. And if you're able to schmooze your way in with the right people, you got published, and if you couldn't, then you didn't get published. Uh, I don't think that's true anymore. I think if you're willing to do the work, anyone can get published, so... Uh, I'm very happy about the changes in the publishing world. The myth number is. And now it's time for myth number, our word for the day. And in honor of our guest, today's phrase is cover art. Joe, what do you feel is the single most important element on a cover? Is it the title, the author's name, or the picture? I say. The title in the correct font. If you get the title and the font correct, the rest of it you can kind of, uh, the rest of it will fall into place. Joe, if you could have a dinner party with any seven people, living, dead, or fictional, who would you include? And I'll tell you what, it was hard for me to come up with my seven because I kept adding more and more and more. Yeah, I, I'm usually a big fan of big, big parties. So uh, 
you know, and I was, I probably the first person I would like to have, I would love to have Clive Barker. Uh, Clive Barker, as I when I was younger, was one of my favorite authors, and he's kind of dried up recently. So I would like to sit him down and ask him why. <laughs> um, two people that uh, one person that really changed my life with her book uh, was a woman named Marion uh, Marion Williamson, wrote a book called uh, Return to Love, and that book completely changed the way I look at the world. Um, I think Alanis Morissette, I just saw her in concert recently, and she seems like probably the most authentic person I've ever heard of. Uh, probably Stephen King. Yeah, because, again, I think I'd like a chance to meet Stephen King. Uh, for humor, I think Tina Fey. I think Tina Fey is probably the most hilarious person alive at the moment. Um... Uh, I think George R. R. Martin. Uh, I'm actually a huge fan of his uh, Wild Card series, uh, but I might want to slap him a little bit, say stop killing people. And <laughs> without getting too maudlin, uh, my mother passed away a couple years ago, so I think I'd like her at the party. And who would you like to cook? <laughs> who would I like to cook? Uh, who is my... the chef? Of oh, the, the chef, not the entree. When you said who would you like to cook, my mind went... <laughs> Wait, we're all authors. We're all going to think that. Uh, who would you like to prepare the food for you guys as the chef? I'll be very specific. Okay, well, I think I'd have to go Martha Stewart because that would be uh, the best dinner party ever. So Martha Stewart. Good. You, mentioned, you mentioned the wild cards. It has been a long time since I have heard anybody mention that series, which was one of my favorites. I, I really, I came out of the Thieves' World genre uh, with Robert Asprin, so I was looking for those anthology-type books, and apparently there's been an, uh, well, not apparently, there has been an uptick in that with the Secret World Chronicles. So if we could get a little sideways on things, what's your take on those type of uh, anthology-type stories? Uh, I'm a huge fan of them. It's uh... It, ideally for me, that's kind of why I set up my, the world the way I did, is at some point I could actually just pass it off to someone and say, okay, here's a story you write about this, and here's a story you write about that. Uh, that's something I would love to do with my own world at some point. It's a, it's a really great idea to build the world without having to do all the work yourself. Well, that's true. Um, even if you think of things like Tales from the Archives, which both Paul and I have written for, um, it's an anthology podcast surrounding the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrence novels. Mm -hmm. And I know TM Pip on multiple occasions have joked that they basically outsource their world building. <laughs> All right, so we've been throwing a lot of questions at you uh, this evening, Joseph. But um, is there a question that you never get asked that you wish someone would ask? Like you've been sitting there oh. this whole time thinking, oh my goodness, I hope they ask blank. And if so, well, what is this question and what would you answer? Oh, okay. Well, I'll, there's... I'll... There is uh, one of the main characters in uh, A Fallen Hero Rises. His name is Ty, and he's gay. And I wanted you know, people to ask, I would like people to ask me why I decided to actually put in a gay character. Um, I actually had a, a few people that I very much respected uh, read the first couple of drafts and said, Joe, you got to take this out. You can't write fantasy with, with a gay character. You know, you know, most of the people that read fantasy are straight white men. And they're not going to like a gay character. And that just made me want to put in a gay character all the more. Because I, from a marketing point of view, I do not want to do what everyone else has already done. I want to stand out. I want to do something different. You know, and I can think of, there's far worse things in life than being known as that guy that wrote the fantasy novel with the gay character in it. 
Um, so I think part of the other, the other reason why I put him in is because there really aren't a lot of gay characters in fantasy genre. So I think I could represent a little bit. And so if there's any characters out there that are looking for a gay character in an epic fantasy world, there you go. Well, that's awesome. Cause I know as I was reading it, and the first time um, Ty mentioned his relationship with Colin, I re- my ears kind of pricked up and went, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Suddenly much more invested precisely because I haven't seen this very frequently. You know, and that's, that's, I think it's, a, I want to tell you a unique story. And, you know, I could have told, I could have very much did what I was, uh, su- what was suggested for me to do, which was to change all of the, uh, and I probably could have done that, but. I don't want to do something that everyone has done before. There, there's no sense in doing something that, uh, doing the same book that someone else has written. I want to do something different. No, and I think it's kind of like the ripple effect when you're editing. I think removing that element is going to change the rest of the story. Um, and I think I would have suffered for it. And I think uh, Ty's character in particular would have suffered for it because it is so much of who he is and so much of his conflict. Again, I don't want to go into spoilers. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're right, Katie. I agree. I mean, that was one of the things that I went, oh, yay, because, you know, I have a major character in my series who is gay. So I read that and I was like, yes, I'm not the only one. Yeah, or I've got some kind of like, uh, I basically pulled a J.K. Rowling. It's like, yeah, they're gay. I just never say it. And it's like, oh, but you said it. That's awesome. (laughs) Oh, no. my Rio in my series is um, uh, his alter ego is Brandy Malone. And he has this phenomenally... uh, popular show in san francisco at a five-star hotel that he he does stuff and i won't give away way anymore but yeah he's a female impersonator and his show is called magic so yeah i i he's one of my favorite characters so when i saw this i was immediately uh going to rio in my head with with ty and just like really really happy that that you did that but that you know, Joe and I seem to have a lot in common anyway. We we have a lot of things that we we have the same stuff on, so like gaming and stuff like that. So it's it's all kind of um, exciting to see somebody else that is that close to what I you know writing the sort of thing that I absolutely love to read, and and that's exactly what Joseph's done with this first book is he's written something that I absolutely adore reading. Also, when you think of science fiction and fantasy. The whole point, or at least I think, is to, I guess, get away from the limits our own world places on us. Why would you create an entire new world? Why would you have a 700-page almanac to tell the same story we have in our world? Good point. Joe, everybody has their own personal myths. Things a lot of people think about us that may or may not be true. Their own personal myth behaviors. What myth behavior do people believe about you that absolutely is not true? Well, uh, I, I'm a teacher, and I, I think my, all of my students tend to believe that I am a 60-year-old, uh, 60-year-old man with a very strong Republican background, and I go to church every Sunday. Uh, all of those are not really true. <laughs> I am not even close to my 60s yet. But uh, it's because of when I'm at work, I have to act in a certain way. I have to be very conservative because I'm teaching accounting. That's, you, I can't be too wild and crazy. But because of that, when people look at me, they tend to see the, I'm that a very soft, reserved, quiet person. And that's not really true. And my friends will tell you this, uh, it's not true at all. Well, then what would your friends say about you, about a myth behavior about you that is true? 
uh, they would probably tell me that sometimes I don't know when to keep my mouth shut. I have a habit of saying the things that people only think about saying. I, I don't really have one of those filters that says, Joe, you shouldn't say that. We were separated at birth, Joe. That's, <laughs> that, that, we really were. There's just so much. It's the hair. It's got to be the hair. It is. Twins oh, from different moms, right? too. You're one of us. <laughs> All right. Well, it is that time, I think, where we have come to the end of our show. So, Joseph, thank you once again for being our guest. We so appreciate all the information and for sharing and for the wonderful conversation. Yeah, Joe, we really do thank you for taking your time to be with us today. You have given us a fascinating look at two different aspects of your own work that uh, I think are very exciting. So I think you've given us some great information today, and I am so looking forward to the next book in your series and your next cover. Uh, so good luck with both of those. Thank you. And remember, everyone, you can go to MythBehaving.com for more information on M. Joseph Murphy and links to his books. You can also read his bio and find links to his social media. And don't forget, you can download this episode on iTunes or you can listen right on the MythBehaving.com website. Please take a moment to leave a positive feedback on iTunes. That's how we move up the charts. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes. So, thank you very much for tuning in to Misbehaving, and we'll see you next time. I'm Katie. And I'm Mare. And we are Misbehaving, where reality meets fantasy. See you soon. Also, we have Paul. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I need to rework that ending. <laughs>